Welcome to IIM's podcast. We focus on challenges in the early stage investing business, um, lessons that we've learned, and advice, both for founders and early stage investors. My name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm the managing director, and we have Lee Harris, our managing member, as well. So today, we're going to talk about starting a business in a downturn. Um so many indications are telling us that we are in a downturn right now. We are in um, the beginning of October 2022. Um, so maybe, Lee, if you could give us just a lay of the land, and then we'll dive into starting a business in these terms when capital's a little tighter than it was a year ago. Yeah, it was really go-go for quite a while. And uh, that has certainly uh, tapered off quite a bit recently. Uh, the Recession talk uh, is probably real. Uh, certainly by technical definition, we are in a recession. I know there's some politicians that uh, don't want to acknowledge that, but I think that's the reality. We have companies, particularly in the tech sector, that are doing reductions in force, RIFs, as they're called. Uh, Apple, Facebook, uh, companies that have huge amounts of cash and are very, very profitable uh, are reducing the workforce. Sometimes it's through uh, what they call a, a, a gentleman's reduction, uh, where people that have been working remotely have been told to get back to the office and they don't want to come back, so they quit. And uh, that's an interesting way to, to do it in this day and age. But these companies don't have to do that. But they're doing it because... Uh, they're they're trying to make sure that their earnings uh, on the bottom line look strong uh, throughout the, the next several quarters. Uh, and uh, as a result of, of the economic environment, what we're seeing is a pullback to a great extent, I think, in funding for uh, early stage companies. Uh, our uh, platform, IIM, Innovation in Motion, we put the foot on the gas. We believe that this is a great time to invest. And we also believe that this is a great time to start a business. Uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, we're, we're not, we're, we're having no reductions in force in our companies. Uh, and uh, we're going to encourage, as we get into this podcast, we're going to encourage founders to think about uh, their their employee base in several ways, but uh, I, I think we're right at the at the beginning of a of a new era, if you will, uh, for starting businesses and uh, and the funding cycle that goes with that. So some of the problems that we saw really that got like exacerbated in COVID, such as the labor shortage, supply chain issues, um, being able to provide healthcare um, and healthy food and access to technology for people. I mean, those, all those issues really got exacerbated during COVID. Those issues still exist. And so what we are starting to see is entrepreneurs building solutions to those problems, particularly in the verticals that we're focusing on agriculture, animal health, human health. Um, and so Lee, I think what you're saying about now being a great time to start a business, not only are market conditions right to really like start a new venture, um, but the problem set is right as well. And that's what we really look for. We look for companies solving real problems and not just trendy problems or short-term problems, but long-term problems and trying to see, to the extent that we can, trying to see into the future and what are the problems going to be five years from now. And then there's a solution right there in the companies that we've invested in. 
Um, what we've also seen is some more realistic valuations from an investor's point of view in companies to invest in. I mean, typically um, the private markets lag a little bit behind the public markets. There's been reductions of 40% with some of these companies in the public markets. And so we are starting to see, I think, what's a, a course correction in valuations. Some valuations are still really high. Um, and companies that can command that are the ones that have real revenue and real traction. The companies that we're seeing that are pre-revenue or maybe more science-based, longer-term um, growth timeline, um, those companies, the valuations, I, I'm at least starting to see valuations come back down to reality. Lee, do you want to add some more comments on starting a business now and what we're seeing? Well, I think you're right about the the valuations for sure. We we saw valuations run up for pre-revenue companies uh, at twelve, fifteen million dollars and more uh, when the norm had been previously four to six million. Maybe uh, if it's a founder with a track record, maybe eight million to ten million tops, uh, and it drove us away from making certain investments. Well, we're back now. Uh, looking at four to four to eight million dollar valuations, and that's healthy. Uh, I heard something this morning about a company that uh, Selena Gomez uh, and Serena Williams uh, are founding. No revenue, hundred million dollar valuation. No revenue. I mean, that's incredible. Now that's a, a celebrity venture, and they, they, they. I think Selena Gomez has three hundred and forty-five million followers on Instagram. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about an extreme here, uh, but that's just amazing to me that they've been able to raise money for a hundred million dollar valuation at no revenue. Uh, so one of the things that I think is important for founders to to uh, to, to include in their business plan is getting to revenue as quickly as they can. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, doing some things to uh, keep their burn at a, at, at, a, at a respectable level, if you will. Things like SBIR funding, which uh, is non-dilutive, and you can talk about that because I know you're well-versed on SBIR. Uh, Pre-selling product. If you, if you have some kind of a product uh, that you've been working on for a while uh, in your basement, and now you want to for form a company around it, uh, try to find some customers that on a discounted basis would buy your product. And and, and uh, it's almost like a Kickstarter type of campaign where uh, money gets raised uh, from customers uh, that are getting some sort of a break on the price. Uh, and, and that will absolutely help uh, help help the the uh, burn issue. So the burn uh, is the amount of money that you're spending each month, uh, and you you don't have it covered with revenue. Uh, so if you're a pre-revenue company, zero revenue, and your expenses are forty thousand dollars a month, you're burning forty thousand dollars a month in in the cash reserves that you have, which you would have perhaps raised through a funding round perhaps through some sort of grants or, like I said before, SBIR funding, or uh, if you can pre-sell some of your product, uh, and, and that's not an easy thing to do, by the way, but it, again, you have to be far enough along with your product development as you start the company that you have something that that is deliverable uh, to a customer in a fairly short period of time. You don't want to 
you're not going to be able to pre-sell two years in advance, but you might be able to pre-sell six months in advance. And if the product is going to be on the market for $1,000 and you can sell it for $250, it brings some cash in in the door. And if you had $10,000 a month in in pre-sell revenue and a $40,000 expense factor, your burn now is down to $30,000. So I think that managing the burn rate is critical for uh for new new founders in a startup um and uh so we talked about valuations making sure that we have a realistic valuation that's not crazy uh and we've seen so many crazy valuations lately that i just have to say that we've talked about managing the burn uh and trying to pre-sell Let's talk a little bit about the SBIR program because I think that's an example of non-dilutive funding. And you might explain non-dilutive funding. Right. So non-dilutive funding means it's money that you get for your business. It's not equity. You're not giving up ownership in order to acquire that funding. And usually those are governmental backed, um, government-based funding opportunities, SBIR and STTR. Um, So the Small Business Innovation Research and Small Business Technology Transfer Program, there's a lot of overlap there. Um, I mean, if you you just Google it, it'll come up top of the list. Um, But what those programs are designed to do is to help companies that have an R&D component, um, it's to help them reach commercialization and even start to scale once they reach commercialization level. It's a competitive process. It's an application. Um, there's a lot of local support systems for entrepreneurs, maybe through your local university, even junior colleges. Um, a lot of times we'll have assistance in grant writing um, or at least informational offices on those programs. Um all investors that I know of love to see non-dilutive funding that has come through a company because it shows, one, that somebody else has looked in this company and believes in it, um, and two, that that's more opportunity for the investors to own a bigger piece of the company and still protect the founder's shares without getting diluted so much. Um, I mean, this is, this is really significant dollars as well. Um, so SBIR, Phase one awards can range from 50,000 to 250,000. And then if you're accepted into that program and you've proven you've reached certain milestones that you set out to achieve, you can be eligible for phase two. Um, phase two awards are generally $750,000. So that is that is real money. Um, again, non-dilutive. It's that, that funding doesn't take away any sort of equity or ownership percentage in your company. I mean, there's even a phase three award that I don't see all that often, um, but it involves like production and processes and services that are utilized by the U.S. government. So that's kind of a specialized step later on. Um, But companies can get, you can get like more than one phase one even. So if you're applying for phase one grant funding for multiple avenues in your business, those would each be eligible for phase two as well. It's a really, really great program that I would encourage any entrepreneur to look into. Um, And even other local programs as well that might not be through the federal government. There's all sorts of grant funding out there for entrepreneurs. You just have to look for it and take the time to write up these applications. Well, and there are also accelerator programs and incubator programs that uh, at least are worth exploring. 
They help you uh, write your business plan for perhaps uh, uh, the accelerator programs in particular, if you qualify and can can get into one, often have a financial component to them where they'll uh, give you some amount of money uh, when you complete the program. Uh, it could be twenty five thousand. It could be a hundred thousand, and they they may take a little piece of your business too. They may take two and a half percent. I've heard of accelerators taking as much as seven and a half percent, which is pretty. That's pretty pricey. So while it's it may be worth uh, getting one of those programs, getting into one of those programs, uh, you'll learn a lot. Just be careful about how much of your company you have to give up. Uh, for uh, for that stipend, it's, I call it a stipend because it's not much more than that. Uh, but there are lots and lots and lots of accelerator programs, and as I said before, incubator. Incubator is usually a little bit before an accelerator. Uh, incubator sometimes has uh, an opportunity for co-sharing uh, workspace. Uh, they may provide some level of financial support, but it's usually very small. It's it's more about uh, helping you understand how to run a business and get started and incubate your idea. Uh, and then you, you perhaps might graduate from an incubator program to an accelerator program to get the get 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 going toward a scale. Uh, but that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. You mentioned the word milestone. And I think that's that's worth uh, at least a, a few moments here. Uh, we we've not seen a lot of milestone investing in uh, the recent past uh, at at the early stage. Most companies need to have all that cash that's invested up front. But if you have a larger investor that says, well, "I'll come in, I'll invest seven fifty, I'll invest a million dollars." But I'm only going to give you $400,000 today. You've said there are certain things that you're going to achieve over the next 6 to 12 months. And as you achieve them, we'll, perhaps we put in another $300,000 at milestone one and another 200000 milestone two. And maybe there's a third milestone for the another 100000 to get you to a million. But that would be something to, to, to very seriously consider because... Uh, a large investor is, uh, is is going to probably be more sophisticated and will want to see results. And as a, we, we're actually looking at that as, as our check sizes grow. If you have an investor that's coming in for 50,000 or 100,000 and they want to split the funding up somehow, that may or may not be worth the time and trouble. But if if you've got a large lead type of investor that wants to 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 invest that way on a milestone basis, I think that's something you should consider as a founder. And I think we'll start to see more of that um, in these market conditions. Um, I mean, we, we've got to see realistic assumptions and projections from entrepreneurs and, and, and a, a reasonable business plan as well, um, which are based on, which is no. based on milestones. Let, let, me get, let me give you an example that I'm making up, but it's not fiction because we've seen it a thousand times. Uh, we, we'll see a pro forma that comes in for the next five years from a founder and they, they, they show a loss of, uh, $700,000 for the first year, and then they show a loss of $300,000 the second year. And the third year, 
They've got 4.5 million in in positive cash flow and profit. And then the the fourth year, it's 17 million. And the fifth year, it's $64 million. I mean, those kind of projections are just ridiculous. We don't want to see them. Don't give us that kind of, uh, of projection because it's based on nothing. I mean, the assumptions that you're going to make, even if you, oftentimes we see those without any assump- any assumptions. It's just numbers on, on paper. When we do dig in and find out what the assumptions are, if there are any, usually they're so wildly optimistic that it's not believable. So I think that uh, be realistic uh, with your, your assumptions in terms of how many customers that you think you can, uh, can gain. Uh, I mean, we've seen... Uh, companies that come with these huge out-year projections in terms of revenue, but they're only anticipating having two salespeople, for example. And that's just, again, it's folly. So realistic assumptions uh, based on something. You know, you've got, if you, if you put a number on paper, you got to tell us how did you get there? That's right. Um, and speaking of revenue as well, um, we've talked a lot, Lee, as a, as, a, as a way to get to revenue earlier is to start pre-selling, but also charging customers early on. We see a lot of freemium models, um, then that can really derail a business if those freemium models last for too long and there's not a point in time where the user like has to convert to paying. Um, because of course, somebody's going to use something for free. But what we want to see from a business perspective is that someone is willing to pay money for this product or service that the company has developed. So I would really encourage founders um, to be wary of freemium models, at least have some sort of nominal dollar amount that increases over time at, at a fairly in a fairly short time frame um, so that you can really prove out your business model and we can see a pathway to this business being profitable. Um, can't tell you how many companies I see that have, you know, 30 users, a hundred users, but they're all freemiums. The company's not making any sort of money. And so that doesn't tell me much in terms of market acceptance and product market fit. If so far, no one's been willing to pay money, even if it's a pilot. And sometimes, um, I, I think there is some value in a pilot that doesn't charge money. If the value to the company to the startup is that they can generate more data. They can use that pilot customer um, to test things out. I, I think there's some value as long as there's an end in sight and it's not just forever free. And there's a there's a real cost at, at the full price at the end of that pilot period. Because um, again, that can just really derail a company and, and elongate the time it takes to get to profitability. You want to add anything about freemiums? No, I mean, I think that uh, that kind of goes a little bit with what I said earlier on pre-selling at a discount. Again, pre-selling at a discount is is limited and you are getting real money. It's not like you're giving the product away free. I, I, I'm i just not a fan of trying to build uh, numbers of users for the sake of building numbers of users. That's kind of an old model. That was an old tech model, a SaaS model. Uh, they weren't so concerned about customer acquisition costs. They weren't, they, they just wanted to have, they being you know, the founders and their funders just wanted to have as uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of users. Uh, but profitability wasn't a big deal at that point. And that I think is over for a while. 
Uh, I'd like to shift gears here and talk about governance and compensation. Uh, a lot of the early stage companies we see don't really have, they might have an advisory board, but they don't have a real board of directors. I think there's a lot of benefit to a company having a board of a real board of directors very early on. Uh, it may only be three people. It may be five people. It should probably be an odd number. Uh, and of course, a founder is going to want to control the board. So uh, it may be a, a third party investor that's on that board uh, as one board member. And it's the founder and it's the founder's father or some, you know, uh, maybe not even a family member, but a, a trusted advisor so that they've got a, a two to one vote, if you will, on that board. But you need somebody from the outside that's going to challenge and, and make sure that uh, the thought process is, uh, is is going in the right direction and not just a yes person. Um, we've and and the board needs to function uh, like a real uh, properly from a governance standpoint. And I've got an example here. We won't mention names, but uh, there's a company that. Uh, recently had decided to change some valuations on uh, convertible notes and they did it outside of a board meeting. They have a real board, but they they made this decision outside of a board meeting. That is not proper governance. And for later stage funding, having that kind of a history where uh, a, a founder can say, look, I formed a board immediately and it operated We've got minutes. We, we we function just like a board should, and it was very helpful along the way. That is a, a good sign to Series A, Series B, etc. The later stage funders, uh, because if you don't have one when you get ready for a Series A, you'll have to have one uh, to, to get larger, sophisticated investors to to pay attention to you. Yep, that's right. And I mean, boards typically review annual budgets um, and oversee any sort of um, large capital expenditure that's outside the budget, um, any sort of material changes to the company or the direction of the company have to be approved by the board as well. And sometimes it has to be even approved um, by all the shareholders or a majority. Now, convertible notes, Lee, as you mentioned, are different because you're technically loaning money to a company, but especially as companies grow and get to the later stages, um, governance is really, really critical, um, yes. and make, making um, making those good practices just their standard early on will make things a lot easier moving forward as companies grow. I mean, a lot of times um, these later stage investors, and even something we're starting to do now in our due diligence process as well as having interviews with board members um, prior to making a decision about investing, because we want to know that someone is on the lookout for investor interest. And there are people who can really drive value for the business and provide those. I mean, even um, helping open doors from a business perspective and provide that real strategic direction for companies as well. That's something that's really important to us. And I know most other investors as well. Is there anything else, Lee, that you wanted well, to add? Yeah. Compensation. Let's talk about compensation for a minute. So uh, oftentimes the, the, Founders uh, aren't going to make the kind of money they need to make. Let's let's just be frank about it. Uh, 
out of the blocks. If you come to us and you're going to show us $120,000 salary as a founder, pre-revenue, we're, we're going to be really not inclined to invest. Uh, so what should a founder's salary be? Well, if you have some savings and you can afford not to take any kind of compensation for a while, it, it reduces your burn and gives you more runway. I mean, we always try to, especially now, we try to get founders to to look at 18 to 24 months of runway before they're out of money. Uh, and you can elongate that by, by keeping compensation levels uh, uh, in a tight range. Uh, 50,000, maybe at the most $75,000 is where the founder's uh, salary should cap out. Uh, you may have to pay, you know, a, a developer, for example, a web developer, you may have to pay more than that. However, there are some creative ways to, to solve that as well. And that's, you're going to have a, a, a compensation pool of, uh, of ownership, perhaps, uh, restricted stock units or, um, you know, some form of, of vesting for, uh, your employee base. Uh, so they take less cash up front and take up a little piece of the company and they're betting on the come. But I will tell you that uh, the days of $300,000 developers in Silicon Valley, that if they don't like what's going on at their company, they've got five of their companies they can go work for and, and make the same amount of money. Those days, I think, are over, uh, very quickly coming to an end. And, and so now we're looking at salaries cut in half or even less. And that's kind of that 300,000 is a coast number. If you're in the uh, interior of the country, it's probably a little, a lot less than that. And um, instead of having five or six other places to go, you have nowhere else to go. And so I think, again, this is a good time to be a founder because I think there's going to be an adjustment, uh, a proper adjustment in, in compensation for the team that you build. But parsimonious is the word. Uh, be very, very uh, careful with your cash. And don't take too much uh, of a salary yourself. Uh, try to pay as little as you can to everybody else. But they need to be compensated and give them big upside in the company. And I think we as funders have no problem if we see a nice compensation pool uh, for for the team that's based on uh, some milestone achievements and, uh, and, and it's an ownership-based comp. Well, and what this does um, by a founder taking a low or no salary, that really aligns you with the investors. And so I think that sends a really strong message to potential new investors saying like everybody wins when we sell this thing or when there's an exit opportunity. Um, so even, even at this like low salary that the founder might be taking to put food on the table because um, everybody needs something. Um, but, but the real upside is at the end, it's not just drawing an annual salary in a startup business like this. We all want to see that big outsized return at the end of the investment period. So Lee, thanks a lot for your time today. Thanks everyone for listening.